We are in James chapter 4. We've been walking through this together. Uh, Again, if English isn't your first language, and maybe you're here for the first time, we'd love to get a Bible to you. Uh, And if um, you you don't read English very well and you'd like to read it in your native tongue, let us know what that is, and we'll try to get a Bible for you because we want to get a Bible to you in your language so that you can read it and discover what God has for you. We are in James chapter 4, and we're going to be walking today through verses 1 through 6. And uh, a few weeks back, I found myself, I was at a spiritual retreat uh, at Starved Rock, which isn't too far from here. And I checked in, and as soon as I checked in, the the lady who was working at the desk said, you know, I just wanted to warn you, sir, that there is a tornado watch that is going on in our community. And that if it strikes, then we will send you, let you know a message, and we will gather in a certain area uh, you know, for your safety. And I said, okay, I've grown up in the Midwest. Tornadoes are nothing new to me. It happens all the time. And then I was kind of surprised that when I got up to my room and I saw that my hotel room light was flashing and it was a message. And just in my time between walking there uh, from the reception desk all the way up to my, my room, uh, it had become a tornado warning. And I also received a text on my phone. I couldn't believe how quickly I was notified that there was a tornado warning. And we had to take cover because they were just fearful of a tornado hit. And a tornado did hit, didn't hit us, but it hit the community right by us and caused some pretty extensive damage. Now, we who are, live in the Midwest are not unfamiliar with tornado warnings that happen each and every uh, season. And we're entering into the spring season this week where tornado warnings are going to be coming uh, day in and day out, almost occurrence. And for many of us, we've become kind of passe about it. It's not that big a deal. We know they're going to come. We know they're going to hit. Chances are they're not going to hit us. But the reality is, is that some, some point in time, it may actually hit us. And we have to understand that. And James is actually issuing us kind of a tornado warning of sorts. And said, this one is a worldliness warning. And it's one that doesn't, it's not just going to pass us by, but it hits every single one of us right where we are and right where we live. Now, some of us might be here today and you're unfamiliar with this term worldliness. What is worldliness? And some of you have grown up in church and you have a, a certain list of what constitutes worldliness and what is not worldliness. And I'd rather not give a list, but I, and I'd rather give us a short, concise definition that helps us understand what it means to be worldly. It's not talking about the planet Earth. It's not talking about the people there. It's talking about a certain way of thinking, a way of believing, certain values and one theologian, his name, by the, his, uh, his name is David Wells, he put it this way, and I'll, and I'll bring it back a little bit later, but he defined worldliness as this. He said, worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's anything that makes sin look normal in our world and righteousness, living a, a life for God, look strange. And it's everywhere in our society. It's in our homes, it's in our entertainment, it's when we swipe on our phones, it's when we're surfing the internet, I mean, it's when we uh, go to the television, it's in our education system, it's it's in our, our parenting, in our marriages, it's in our workplaces, it's everywhere that we go, and it permeates all of our thinking, and we have to understand and recognize it, because James is issuing us this worldliness warning so that we might avoid the dangerous entailments of what the world is. And how do we avoid it? For many of us, we think that it just means hunkering down and withdrawing from the world and becoming some spiritual Amish. But that's not what it's referring to at all. Matter of fact, many of us have this what I call bunker mentality. It's us against the world. And so we get in our churches and it's us against the world and we think that, oh, you know, Satan's trying to break in the door. And then we quote the verse, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan, you can't bring us down. 
But that's actually the wrong understanding of the verse. Gates are what protected a city. When it says that the gates of hail will not prevail against it, it's saying that Satan can't stop God's kingdom from permeating his world. That's what it means. It means going out and extending, but yet still managing to navigate this world and this worldliness that we live in. So we have to understand how to do that. And today that's what James is going to show us as we join and we look within his word today. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment, asking God by his spirit to open our hearts to receive the truth of his word that we might go forth changed. So let's go before God together and ask him to be with us today. Heavenly Father, you are the holy God. Lord, you have called all people from all different backgrounds, from all different tribes and tongues to yourself. Lord, you're not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how wealthy one is or how important they might think they are, what titles they have in front of their name or initials behind their name. Lord, your concern is if they know the name of your son. And today we come before you in need need of grace, in need of mercy, and in need of you, of your speaking to us. Lord, so how often we have gone through life on our own strength and our own power, doing whatever we wanted to. And yet, Lord, you're showing us within your word how we might be able to avoid worldliness and walk in truth and in light in the midst of the world. So, Lord, direct us, empower us, show us how we might truly be your emissaries your ambassadors, your agents of light, permeating the kingdom of darkness with the light and life of Christ. So speak to us that we might go forth changed and that this truth might help us in our marriages, might help us in our singleness, might help us in our workplaces, might help us in our schools, might help us in our neighborhoods. In whatever situation we find ourselves, Lord, let this truth speak to us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're jumping into James chapter 4. And in James, let's set the stage a little bit so everybody knows and is on the same page. We have this tendency to think that the Bible people were so far away from us, and we fail to remember that they're just like us. And James is writing to, and this is the very first letter, by the way, of the New Testament. I mean, we have our Bibles, especially if you're familiar with the New Testament. Some of you may be familiar, some of you may not, but it starts off with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we think that's how the order is how they came to be, but that's not the case. James was actually written in about A.D. 44, and it's the very first letter of the entire New Testament that's being written. And the New Testament's actually being written uh, as James is writing. The different authors are writing, and each one comes to birth, and uh, all 27 are pretty much finished by A.D. 90, A.D. 95. But James is writing to this group of believers that are dispersed over the known world, and they're suffering. They've gone through a lot. I mean, they were, imagine, you were at your home, you got kicked out of your homeland or away from your people, you're, you're having to say goodbye to your parents, possibly, or your spouse, or your children, you, sir, you, you have a loss of reputation, you might lose your employment, you might lose your family. I mean, think about all of the things that constitute home and how different it is. And they're feeling that alienation. Several years ago, um, we were contemplating going on to school, doing further education. I was looking at uh, furthering my, my uh, Christian education. And I wanted to uh, go to Europe. I really thought, thought maybe God was leading me to Europe. And I started looking at schools in Scotland because I like the accent so much. And I, I wanted to go to Scotland, but I was a little nervous about moving to Scotland. 
And so I remember finding this guy from Arkansas who had moved to Scotland and was studying at the exact university in, in, and in the exact program I wanted to go to and study in. And I said, hey, typing it up in this email, he said, what's it like living in Scotland as an American? And he wrote back, he says, if you don't mind, he, he, this is exactly what he said. He goes, if you don't mind not having sunlight, American football, or good food, it's a great place to live. My wife looked at me and she went, well, that's our life, honey. <laughs> and, and suddenly I realized it's, it's difficult to move to a foreign land. And some of you might know that. Some of you come from Africa or Asia or you might come from, a different, you might come from an island or South America. Wherever it is you might come from and you come to the U.S. and it's different smells, it's different sights, it's different sounds, it's different values, it's different sports, it's different traditions. And it's hard coming to a foreign land. I know many of you have had a really hard time, especially when it got cold outside. It's a different place to live. And see, this is what James's people, they are being taken from their home city, maybe not necessarily completely a different country or outside of everything they didn't understand or, you know, completely unfamiliar culture. But it was, it was still unfamiliar. And they're wondering, I and mean, they're a little angry. Some of them are wondering, did we did we fail God? Is that why we get, we're in the situation we're in? Is that why we're suffering? And others are, are frustrated. Some of them are, are, are saying they believe in God. They're not doing anything about it. Others are gossiping with one another. Some people are fighting. I mean, there's people giving preference to people that got money. I mean, they got all these problems going on, just like we do. And James writes to address them, and he is addressing one by one by one. And now he comes upon a subject that really hits every single one of them. And he really, what he's doing is he's putting up a mirror in front of their, front of their face so that it, they can see the situation that they're in and need to make and see how they look so that they might make the necessary changes to do what God wants them to do. And he, he, he starts off in verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, he was helping them to, to, helping them to see that the problem wasn't with everybody else. We have this tendency to blame everybody else for our problems. It's because of my neighbor. They drive me nuts. Or if my coworker wasn't here, or if my boss would do this, he's saying, no, 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 take a look in the mirror. What causes the quarrels? It's not everybody else. It's the person looking back at you in the mirror. You have to understand the situation that you're in. See, that's what we have to do. We have to evaluate our own situations. And through James, we can see this mirror where God's truth is staring at us, permeating who we are, probing the depths of our being, showing who we are in the situations that we find ourselves in. And what are they struggling with? What are we struggling with? He says here, you guys have got a bunch of unresolved problems. That's everything right now. You guys are facing so many unresolved problems. What are the unresolved problems that you have in your life? That's letter A in your notes. Unresolved problems. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This idea is actually repeated in verse 2. The wording indicates that these battles, and this was in the body, by the way, were fierce. The Greek word for quarrels literally means war. But here it points more to a dispute going on between members of the church. And the Greek word for fight literally refers to a battle. And so the first word pictures the chronic state or campaign of war, while the second presents the separate conflicts or battles of the war. They were fighting over a bunch of stuff, and it wasn't pretty. And looking at, their, at the context, their problems were pretty massive. I mean, look at verse 2. 
He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You know, I've been a pastor a long time. I have not yet seen it break out into murder. (laughs) That's how bad these people were. This isn't just a figurative thing. They actually would kill one another. That's pretty bad. Now, I'm glad God has blessed us. We've never had any church fights like that. I mean, ours are pretty minor in comparison. But these guys were dealing with that, and they had unresolved issues that they were struggling with back and forth. And he's saying, you have, if you have unresolved problems, you guys are fighting all the time. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It got so bad. Now look at the second part of verse 1. He gives a reason kind of why. But he says, is it not this? He, he presents a question as a rhetorical device, that your passions are at war within you. The second question he wants us to look at is, are there uncontrolled passions among us that we're dealing with? that we know that we have to put into control or subjugate. We all have passions. We have this desire in each one of us that's really about us, getting what we want, what we want, when we want, how we want it. How much of us getting what we want has caused us such heartache? See, these were believers who were fighting with one another because they wanted their own way. Now, there's a third question James asks for us. He goes, are there unanswered prayers? Notice what James says in the second part of verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. They didn't ask when they were in need, but they did ask. But when they did ask, they didn't ask correctly because they wanted it to fulfill their own selfish desires instead of using it for God. Now, whenever we see these unresolved problems or uncontrolled passions and unanswered unanswered prayers among the people of God, we know that something bad is going on. So we need to trace it back and examine the source. See, why are we struggling so much? Look at verse 1. He starts off with this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word for passions here literally is referring to our sinful desires. This is the unredeemed part of who we are. This is the part of us that has not yet been really completely uh, redeemed, if you will. The unredeemed part of who we are. We have this sin that lives within us that wants to get out. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, this. I like to call it this. Every single person here has what I call a dent of disobedience. You have a dent of disobedience. Now, I've shared this before, but it bears repeating again. I want you to imagine an 18-wheeler. 18-wheeler that you'd see on the expressway, and it has all these cars stacked on it. The driver of the 18-wheeler is told that he can drive wherever he wants to, except one place, and there's actually a gate that says death ahead. So he drives around and enjoys himself, but then one day he sees someone shutting the gate, and he says, wait a minute. I want to go through there. He says, well, you have to, the guy says, you have to drive through the gate and you'll be fine. But he says, it says death ahead. He goes, you're going to be okay. So he drives through the gate, breaks the gate open and not realizes he's driving uphill. He comes to the end of it and actually drives off a cliff. And all of the cars in the back of that trailer roll out and each one is dented or some have their, their roof broken in. Some have their windshield shattered. Some have their, their axles broken. That is each one of us. See, the driver of that truck was Adam. 
when Adam sinned, we were in Adam, and then each one of us is born with our own dent of disobedience, which seems natural to each one of us. That's why some people struggle with alcoholism and others don't. That's their dent. Some have drug addiction. Some don't. Some have a problem with swearing. Some have a problem with homosexuality. Some have a problem with adultery or pornography. Some have a problem with stealing or gossip. Some have a problem with whatever it is. We all have a dent. Every single one of us has a dent of disobedience. We're born dented in a way because we inherited our first parents' sin and it exhibits itself in each one of us differently. Theologians call this original sin. Now, when we engage our dent, that leads to other dents. For example, if your dent is alcoholism and you continue to engage in alcohol, I mean, alcohol addiction and drunkenness, and you're getting drunk all the time, then it's going to lead to possibly stealing, adultery. It, it goes on. And you can trace that for any sin. Gossip, lying, pride. Every one of us in this room has a dent of disobedience. And when we point at someone else and we think, oh, theirs is worse than ours is, we fail to understand how bad our own sin is in the sight of God. That each one of us, every single one of us in this room, is worthy of condemnation in the sight of God. Which is why Jesus, why God gave Jesus to die on the cross for us, to show his judgment on our sin, that we might be freed from our dents. And that we might learn to put to death or mortify our flesh. To die to our sinful nature. By picking up our cross. By understanding that we were crucified with Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, we were in essence crucified with him. As Galatians 2.20 states, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So we're freed from those. Now, we're freed from the power of sin, but we're not freed from the presence of sin. And that's what he's talking about here. We have to deal with our flesh, that unredeemed part, that presence of sin that's still in our lives, that we have to take up our cross and die to daily. And you know what your dent is. I don't have to point it out to you. You know what your particular sin is that you want to hide from other people. Every one of us has it, but every one of us has to understand that Christ died to save us from it. And that we have to learn to die to those dents and live this righteous life that God wants. We have to die to our flesh. Because the reality is, is our flesh is what we, we think we deserve. I mean, when we talk about the flesh, we can talk about evil things like that. But see, we can cover over our flesh with what we think are godly things. And we have this way of looking at God and manipulating God if God doesn't do what we want to do. But those are really actually acts of the flesh that we can disguise as godly language. Let me explain. Uh, Larry Osborne, who's a pastor of North Coast Church in San Diego, California, wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. And in this book, he talks about having an interaction with a guy who came to his church. He was actually a church member, and the, he came to him one day, and he was uh, crying. And he was really frustrated that he'd been passed over for a promotion at his company. And he was lamenting. He said, it's because I'm a Christian. My boss is, boss is an atheist, and he didn't give me the promotion because he knows I'm a Christian. And Osborne's like, I know, you know, he doesn't say this to him, but he's like, I know this guy. I don't think he was passed over because he was a Christian. I think he was passed over because he was a jerk. But he's talking to the guy, and the guy makes this comment. I mean, he goes off, and he says he felt that God had let him down. He was frustrated and angry with God. 
he wondered what good it had done him to follow Jesus for all these years. He says, why have I been obedient for all these years? God, why are you punishing me so? And Osborne looks at him, and this is what Osborne writes in the book. He goes, I didn't know what to say to the guy. I thought the main reason we follow Jesus is because he's God and he forgives our sins. I didn't realize there was a career advancement component as part of the deal. So you have this tendency to look at God that he's going to gratify our sinful desires, even if we mask them. We say that, oh, I'm following God, that I'm still going to get this stuff. But that's still our flesh coming out a lot of times. We do that with selfish ambition. It's even, it's even true in our jobs. I just finished reading another book of his called Spirituality for the Rest of Us. And in it, he devotes an entire section on what he calls the unfulfilled potential trap. And I see this in Christians all the time. You see, we've been told that we have this limitless potential and have elevated the idea of fulfilling our potential higher than anything else, above loyalty, sacrifice, and anything we believe might restrict us and keep us back from fulfilling our potential. Osborne comments, he goes, We tend to see unfulfilled potential as a tragic shame. Squandered opportunity is a sinful choice. We assume that God couldn't possibly be pleased with anyone who settles for being less than the best they can be in any area of life. But it's a lie. Potential is not a sacred responsibility. Potential is a harsh mistress, seductive, never satisfied, prone to exaggeration, nearly impossible to figure out. Those who pursue her inevitably end up in the poisoned land of self-centered priorities and me-first decisions. But it's a quest that's often justified with pious platitudes about following God's calling and using all the gifts we've been given. However, God's calling won't be found there. It's found on another path, far removed from the me-first orientation of the maximized potential crowd. It's found on the seldom-traveled side road filled with opportunity for sacrifice, service, and self-denial. He goes on, I noticed that when my friends and colleagues who considered fulfilling their personal potential as the best way to please God were not becoming more Christ-like, they were becoming increasingly competitive, self-centered, and satisfied. I also noticed that when it came time to make major life decisions, the compass called potential always pointed to the bigger platform, the more challenging task, and the greater rewards. It seldom pointed toward sustaining a long-term relationship, a slower pace, a lesser role, or an old-fashioned concept called loyalty. Now, why do I share this? It's because, see, our flesh can come out in different ways. As Christians, this is the air we breathe. I mean, we interact with the world, and there's this worldly philosophy that's saying that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's permeated into marriages, and it's become this selfish thing where then God becomes this ultimate divine genie that if we put in uh, blessing into his ATM, I mean, if we put in obedience, then we would draw blessing into the ATM of grace. And that's not what God wants. That's not what he's asking for. It's not about your unfulfilled potential. That's not it at all. It's straight up about being obedient. See, I'm, I'm tired of hearing so many Christians go on and on about what they know and, and that they can't do such and such a thing. They can't do this. They can't do that. Uh, I need more training. I need more information. You have more training than almost the entirety of the early church ever had. Seriously, it's not about how much you know. It's about being obedient with what you have. And that's what all of us have to understand. It's, it's when we get saved, we serve in whatever way possible to extend the kingdom of God by doing good works. And that's not always a program. You know, you were designed to do good works. And we have this idea that good works only happen when we call it ministry. And we think that only ministry is done by people that are paid to do ministry. That's stupid. 
Ministry, as soon as you are saved, you are a minister of the gospel. I'm a pay, you're not in paid vocational ministry, but you're in ministry. If you're in a school, you're a student, you're a ministry every day when you interact around the lockers. You're going between classes. If you're, you're working at a, at, a, at a company where you're in a cubicle, your ministry is to interact and, with the people around you. See, God has designed us to do good works. And you know what a good work is? A good work is something for the benefit of someone else. That's why we have to understand, by the way, it's not about a program. And, and for the mothers that are staying home with their children and think, well, I'll have more time to do ministry when I get done with this. You're in ministry right now. You are serving your children in the teachings of Christ. You're doing a good work. You're serving someone else. We have this complete dichotomy set up where this is one thing and it's not another. You're, you're saved to expand the kingdom of God wherever you are in the sphere that you're in. Period. Your job is to be obedient, not always to sit in a class. It's not about a class all the time. It's about being Christ where you are, loving people, serving people, sacrificing yourself for someone else. But we have this idea that it has to take place in a class. We have to preserve ourselves from the world. We're going to sit here and listen to everybody, and we're going to make sure we have the right Bible and go to the right conferences. And (laughs) That's stupid. And I see some people are like, well, this is what I was told to do. Well, this is what I'm telling you to do. Obey God and do as you please. That's it. And we're so busy covering our ambition up and a selfish ambition at that to get bigger and better and more of stuff that we fail to understand that we're also called to, we're mainly called to sacrifice. Makes me sad. And we have this also this other tendency to really think about just the world and the flesh and the devil, and we compartmentalize them. These, as Christians, it says we have three enemies. The scripture does. We have the world, the fallen system. Again, anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. We're talking about that. We're going to expand that in a bit. We have the devil, the evil one. And then we have uh, our flesh, right? But here's the thing. The three don't operate on their own. They operate in conjunction. You know, Jesus is a fisherman, right? Or he's a fisher of men is what we say. You know, the devil is also a fisherman. He wants to imitate God. So what he does is he takes his pole, and it's called the pole of the world. And in it, he puts the bait of the flesh on it to get you. And the three are all operating together. Satan knows your life. He knows your tendencies. He knows everything about you. He knows what your inclinations are, and he's going to tempt you in different ways. I mean, he's a great, if we would call him in modern terms, a behavioral scientist or a great sociologist. For example, when you go shopping, do you know that as soon as you walk into Target, most sociologists and behavioral scientists know exactly how long you're going to stay in a certain place and how far you're going to go? For the, for the men, they know the men's going to walk in, get what he needs, and walk out. For women, they know they're going to go there, and they're going to go over there, and they're going to go over there, and they're going to go back there and go over there again. It's going to be all over the place. But they know exactly how long you're going to be there. So do people that design grocery stores. We've talked about this before. Think about it. Where, what do you need most of the time throughout the week? Milk and bread, right? These are things you have to get. Where is the milk at in the grocery store? Is it in the front where it'd be most convenient to get and walk out the door? No, it's in the back. Why? So you'll walk around and go, man, I could use some good ho-hos. That's good. Some ice cream over here. Oh, I need this. And you'll buy more stuff because they understand your behavior. See, the devil does the same thing with your life. 
He knows if certain situations, certain things that you go through, certain problems that you have, and that he knows he's going he's to use all of those to get you to sin. And again, he changes the bait of the world with your fleshly desires. And he knows to get different people, he's going to use different bait, just like a fisherman does. A person who's a fisherman knows that you don't use the same bait to get catfish as you might get for a pike or a small, you know, a smallmouth bass. You use different bait. And he's going to use different fleshly bait to get you to sin. But he uses the world, and the world then appeals to your flesh and makes it look normal. And you can have it your way. The world is great at selling sin as great experiences. And like everybody else is doing it. And that it's not going to be that big a deal. And look at, look at so-and-so. Look at their Instagram post. They're doing it. They're not suffering at all. It's a big, giant lie. And we have to be able to stand guard and be aware of our demonic foe. Now, as we've seen, our foe plays to our flesh. But the main section I wanted to focus on today is our love affair with the fallen world. The fallen world. That's the next point within your notes. And I want to elaborate what it means to be a friend of the world. The, world there, the word there is actually phileo. The idea is friend, close friend, intimate friend. And that you are actually sending a friend request to the world saying, please be my friend. And God's saying then, God is like your friend. And he's saying, if you want to send a friend request to that, then you are declaring war on him like you're unfriending him at the same time. You can't have both. You can't have the world and God because they're going in two drastically different directions. We have to be aware of that. Ian Murray, who's an author, he wrote, this is uh, his definition or explanation of the world that I found to be very uh, enlightening and hopefully helpful to you. He says, worldliness is departing from God. It's a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature, the flesh. Meaning that, He'll cater to your flesh. That's what the world is. It caters to your flesh. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols and is at war with God. It doesn't want to be unpopular. I mean, how many of us want to be unpopular, really? We want to be popular. We want people to like us. But the reality is, if you're trying to get the world to like you, then you're not going to be able to do what's pleasing in his sight. We have to rethink who we're living our lives in front of. The approval of men, which is passing away, or are we doing it for God, whose will endures forever? Matter of fact, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn over a couple pages to 1 John chapter 5. I don't have this verse on the screen, but I wanted to share this with you. In 1 John... Um, chapter 2, not 5, excuse me, chapter 2, in verse 15 through 17, uh, the Apostle John writes this about the world. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he elaborates, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possession, as the one version put it, the boasting of what one has and does, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is the part you need to really pay attention to. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
That's what endures. You can attach yourself to this world trying to be fame, famous. You might get a lot of people that are shouting your name, but you'll all be forgotten for not in eternity. So we have to understand that, how to fight this fallen world. And again, the short definition of the world is this. The world is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. So we need to watch for worldliness in our lives because it's deadly. It's like carbon monoxide. Unless you have the spiritual carbon monoxide detector of the Bible, you'll keep breathing it in and it will kill you. And it's not isolated from our flesh or the devil. That's why we have to be on watch for it in our lives. It can easily find root in us. Now, James is a resourceful guy. He gives some hints in his passage how we can fight worldliness, our flesh, and the devil. And we need to make sure that we embrace his solution. He's got a solution that he's laid out, hints within this text, that we can see how we can curb our appetites or our desire for the world. The first is this. We have to learn how to curb our passions or die to ourselves. The ancients called this mortifying the flesh. We're to die to ourselves. We die to our wants and desires. Some of our ambitions, not all ambition is bad, but the ones that take us away from God or puff us up rather than God. And secondly, we have to check our pursuits. Notice what James says in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you try to be friends with the world... I mean, it's like a pursuit here that you see going on. Who wishes to be a friend? You want to pursue this relationship. So we have to check ourselves. Are we pursuing the things of the world? Are we pursuing the world's fame? Are we pursuing money, advancement? Are we pursuing just to influence other people? Are we doing it really for God or are we doing it for ourselves? Do we want more people to follow us on Instagram so they'll like our pictures to make us feel better about ourselves? What about on Snapchat? What about on Facebook? I'm, I, 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 Facebook is a tool is a tool that can be used for great things or it can be used completely for vanity. And I see so many people telling things and, and one of the, just talking about things that are trying to get other people, they're basically showing off. I like how the Babylon Bee put it. He goes, you know what you should do for Lent? I think you should give up telling everybody what you're giving up for Lent. Because people are doing that. They're doing it just to show, hey, this, I'm spiritual. It's, that's a sinful desire. That's why Jesus was talking about when we pray, close the door and pray to your heavenly Father who is in secret and your Father who is in secret will reward you. You're living before an audience of one. Not all of your Facebook and social media friends. We have to remember that. So we have to check our pursuits. Are we pursuing the world? Are we pursuing the world's acceptance among our friends and coworkers? Are we pursuing the world by abandoning the principles of truth, peace, and honesty by saying it's just business? The Bible doesn't know that type of faith. Genuine faith seeks to be obedient. Not reputation, not power, prestige, money, or influence. Genuine faith seeks Christ's kingdom in every facet of our lives. We want Christ to be the center of our lives. Verse 5 is fascinating. I used to wonder what this verse meant, and it's an amazing verse. Look at verse 5 with me. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See, as we learned a few, uh, actually several months ago, we went through a series where we learned that jealousy in God is never bad. It's never bad. Jealousy in us, we can be good or bad. Um, 
jealousy comes up when something is given to someone else when it's rightfully yours. Like if my wife were to have a guy walk up and give him a kiss, I would get jealous real fast. Or a guy would walk up and kiss her. She would never do that. A guy would walk up and kiss her. I would get jealous real quick. Because why? Because that's rightfully for me. For me, it's rightfully. And that's a good jealousy. Now, if, if you've, you've seen someone that you like, if you're not married, let's say that you're single, and there's someone you like, and they walk up and kiss someone, and you get jealous, and that's not right jealously because it's not rightfully yours. See, God gets jealous for you because he, he wants you for himself because he wants what's best for you. He wants to give you himself. So God, when you come to saving faith in Christ, he puts his spirit in you, and the spirit of God yearns jealously for the things of God. And, and we have a tendency to go after sin, and God, it grieves the heart of God. It's like we're saying to God, I mean, God's got this wonderful, nice, big, cold glass of water that's for you. And you say, no, God, and you take a straw and go sip from the mud puddle with all the pollutants by the horse trough. That's what we do. That's what we do. Because God is saying, no, I want, you to ha- I want what's best for you. I don't want you to go after that. I want you to come after me. And it says that the Spirit of God yearns jealously. And he's saying, I don't want you to go after the world. I want you for myself. I want to show you the glories of who I am and what it means to, to be forgiven, to live a life of purpose, to have a higher meaning, to understand, to have victory, and not be chained to your past and to your sins. I want to show you that life. I don't want you to go after that. Those are muddy waters. I have pure water. Drink from me. That's what he's saying. And he is offering it to each one of us. And that's what we can see within this text. Or do you just suppose that the scripture says he yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So what's the principle? What's the point that we can take from that? I'm going to throw some fun words at you. You're going to, we have to learn to seed to the paraclete. Right, that's a good one. Seed, C-E-D-E, which means yield. Paraclete is actually a Greek word. Uh, it comes from the book of John, chapter, uh, uh, book of John, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. I believe it's John 16. It could be John 14, where Jesus is talking to the disciples about the helper that would come. Para, it's a, it's a compound word. Para means to come alongside. Clete is a, comes from the Greek word kaleo, to call, and it's literally someone calling alongside you to help you. Now, uh, 50 pounds ago, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And uh, I ran the marathon, and I was getting into mile 20. I'm not a marathon runner by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm running, and, and then one of my former students, who's become a real close friend of mine, crosses the tape, and he's all dressed to run. And he jumps in the race, and he's right in my ear for the last six miles. And he's encouraging me as I'm running. He goes, you can do this. you got this. Come on. Don't give up now. Don't give up. You can do it. We got it. Come on. Eye of the tiger, baby. Eye of the tiger. He starts calling out with me and encouraging me and getting me going. And he helped me finish. And see, that's what the Holy Spirit is. He's coming alongside, calling to us, empowering us to live the life that God wants us to live. Convicting us, showing us when we're going off the tracks a bit. But bringing us back to who Christ is, that we might be able to follow him and do what it is pleasing in his sight. So we need to seed, yield our lives to the paraclete. Which means learning to listen to God and what he's convicting us to be and do. So that's what seed means. It means to yield. We're to yield to the Spirit of God placed within us. And that's only, though, if you have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit of God. You have to have Christ. And then He gives you His Spirit when you receive Him as Lord and Savior. He 
He places his spirit within you to help you live that life that God requires. Now, we're to yield to the spirit who place, God placed within us. In other words, we obey the spirit's promptings. God has a way of speaking to us about what we know is wrong. We simply choose to ignore it. But when we do, we find the light dimming and the life becoming harder. This is called the dimmer principle. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. This is a great truth that you see within the word. Because some of us say, hey, I can, I, don't, I can hear this message and it doesn't really matter at all. I don't need to do anything with it. I don't need to obey what God wants for me. Here's what happens. When God speaks to you and you choose to ignore his promptings, he makes the light a little dimmer. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, says that God gave people over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That if we ignore what God is showing us, then he continues to dim the light. But if you obey what God says, then he makes the light brighter. That's what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 teaches us. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The idea is, is that the more you continue to walk, the brighter that it gets. The more God starts to show you, the more blessing that it, you have, the more things you understand, the more that you can distinguish between good and evil as you begin to mature. And that's why, and, I, and I'm going to go off again on this, is that it's not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. And that's what it's about. Some of you have been in Christ and been in church for 40 years, and you're still walking around in saggy diapers. You're spiritual babies. But there's others of you that haven't been in Christ very long, and you're, I mean, you're, you're like, I mean, you might be a high school age, but spiritually, man, you're like college grads. Because you're obeying. See, that's what it's about. It's being obedient to what God has shown you. And that's the dimmer principle. The more you obey, the more God is going to show you. The more you disobey, the more he's going to pull back. We have to be careful of that and make sure that we're walking in the light as he is in the light. And God says that we want, but we don't get it. That's what he says in this text. Let's go back to our text for a moment. He says, because we don't ask. And when we do ask, we don't ask with the right motives. See, what I want us to see here is that God wants us to ask, to call on him in prayer. See, one of the ways that we are able to fight worldliness is by continually asking God to renew our minds as we meditate on the word, but also communing with him. We have to ask with right motives, asking him to change us, to call on him. No matter what it is we want, no matter the thing we're dealing with, and if we know that we shouldn't ask God, then it probably shouldn't, isn't what God wants for us. But take it to him. Tell him your heart. He can handle it. Now, I want us to understand also that no matter how fired up we might be, no matter what our best intentions might be, we're going to fail. I know I've kind of, but let me come alongside and pat you on the back now. Because we're all going to fail in this. Each one of us are broken. We're leaky vessels. We're going to struggle. We're going to sin. We know we all have, we struggle with worldliness. We, we've given ourselves over to our flesh. And we know that we're going to fail and fall. And you know, one of the greatest promises in Scripture that if we confess our sins, he's faithful. Not you're faithful. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that he will, he will forgive. You can't earn forgiveness. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough to get God's approval. It's because of what Jesus has done on your behalf that he took upon himself all of our disobedience, all of our sin, all of our struggles, all of our shame, all of our guilt. And that's what happened on the cross, that he became, I mean, he took the very wrath of God upon himself, that he became sin. 
2 Corinthians says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, by faith in him, we become the very righteousness of God. We're saved not because of our own works. We'll never be good enough. But it's by trusting in the work that he's already done. And that's where new life is. And that's a promise that we can, that we can bank. That if we fall and fail, that if we, get, we, we turn to him and the right contrite heart are truly broken, that he will forgive us. Praise God. That's a, one of the greatest promises. Another one is Romans 8, chapter 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more condemnation against you. You're not in this, he loves me, he loves me not relationship. You're in a relationship where he loves me. And he will have an everlasting love. And we have to cling to this promise that he gives us right here in verse 6. But he gives more grace. That's God's free gift. Grace is God's unmerited favor. God gives you his favor, not because of anything that you have done, but entirely by what Jesus has done. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, this is the greatest part right here. How do you get this grace? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. You have to humble yourself. Some of us are so proud We're so strong. We think that nothing can break us. But we can't receive grace if we're not willing to humble ourselves. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's not our own doing. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And this same grace that saves us, this God's merited favor that he makes available to us in Christ, that he extends to us for us to receive, we have to take a hold of. And then we have to learn to live by this grace. And that's what Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 tells us. For the grace of God has appeared. It's appeared because of Christ. Bringing salvation for all people from all tribes, tongues, nations, backgrounds, experiences, kings, paupers, rulers, those that are in the lowest part of society, those that are in the greatest, the most wisest and the most simple. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all for all people, training us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, these worldly desires and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, saying no to your flesh, upright, morally righteous, and godly lives in this present sinful age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, zealous to help other people, to serve other people, to expand the kingdom of God by doing good works. See, we all need to be on a worldliness watch because it's in the air. The devil uses it and plays to our sinful desires to get us to bite don't give in. And if you find worldliness inside of you, ask God to kill it. Ask him to change you. And know that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and if you have trusted in Christ, that same power is made available to you to help you say no to sin. And that grace is there acting as this divine safety net to protect you that you'll never completely fall because God's grace is there for you. 
And know that he has given you his spirit and yearns jealously for you to follow him because he wants what is best for you. Which is why he sent his son to die in your place so that you wouldn't suffer the torture of hell, but to have life, abundant life, with him now and forevermore. Let's pray. Almighty God, I come before you today thanking you for your grace in my life and asking you to touch those, to show them your grace, that they might share in this life that you've given to me and to so many others. For those that have not yet truly understood who you are, Lord, I pray that you might place the conviction of your Holy Spirit upon their heart to impress upon them the truth of who you are, that you were the crucified and risen Lord of glory, the great God who came to live among us, to take our sins upon himself. Lord, when I think of the depth of your love, I cannot begin to fathom how you, this great God who put all of the stars into place, who fixed our sun and all the different planets of our solar system, and how they continue to go on their path day in and day out, and to realize that even the small galaxy that we have is just but one of thousands, even millions or billions, and yet you're bigger than all of it. And yet how you would humble yourself and send your son to take on our flesh is beyond my ability to comprehend or fathom and to understand what happened on Calvary, what happened on that cross, how all of our sins of every people, group, and tribe, and individual was thrown on him at one time. I can't begin to understand. Lord, how we wanted our own will, our own selfish pursuits, and yet you stood in our stood in the path of God's wrath. And Lord, you took upon yourself. I'm amazed. Lord, I pray that we might heed this worldliness watch, that we might be able to die to our, our sinful flesh. We might be able to guard ourselves against the schemes of our demonic and fallen foe. And that we may be, may be able to protect ourselves from worldliness, that we might live lives that are pleasing in your sight by the power of your spirit. Lord, help us to make the changes necessary in our, in our daily lives where maybe it's changing some friendships or removing ourselves from certain practices, whether it be watching or changing what we look at online or scroll through, what we look at on YouTube or Netflix or Hulu or Vudu. Lord, please, whatever it might be, change us and help us to be the people that are truly walking as salt and light in the midst of your world. And Lord, help remind us of the truth of your word that the gates of hell will not prevail against your kingdom that's marching forth in the hearts of men and women, not only here at the corner of Randall and Galena and in our community, but all over the world. And Lord, please use us to do whatever you determine that is pleasing in your sight to do for the glory of your name. And may we find amazing joy of doing it. So empower us and direct us. And Lord, for those that have not yet trusted in you, I pray that they might place their faith in you. 
that they might call on the name of the Lord and they might say, Jesus, save me, and that you will save them and that you will transform them. So, Lord, bless us, grow us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.